there's nothing more practical than perspective. And so today, this morning, I'm in the middle of, uh, of the talk. We're going to get kind of deep in, in thought. So get your notes out, get your Bible out. Uh, just, I just say that because you might go, whoa, okay, this is, we're going deep. But we're going to get to some practical application. But in order for it to really apply, we need to get a right perspective. Because everything we do comes out of the perspective we have. Now, have you ever heard somebody say, oh, you just want to say face? Yes? All right, I used to see light, so if I, you can go ahead and go, amen, or yes, or you got a bro, or whatever. All right. Uh, yeah, in China, people frequently talk about face uh, when, when they're talking about people's reputation, respect. It's kind of like your social worth, like honor and shame type things. People will use the word face. Uh, losing face, getting face. So here's the key question I wanted to ask. Is it a sin to seek face? Ask that question of yourself. Is it a sin to seek face? Now, people in East Asian honor shame cultures uh, take face very seriously. And in Japan, they have this suicide ritual. Uh, when somebody's brought shame upon the family, uh, they will do, or they, historically they have done. And uh, here's, a, here's a, a quote from one writer who describes the ceremony. He says, Taking one's life is seen as an honorable way of atoning for public disgrace and expression of one's deep sense of shame. So honor and, sh- and face and shame, these things are uh, interlinked with loyalty. It's how you, how you relate to your family. So if you hurt your family, you shame your family, well, then this is a way in which you, uh, for example, this ritual is a way in which you can atone for that. Uh, another scholar wrote this, uh, suicide in Japan, often misunderstood in America, is the ultimate means of taking responsibility for having brought shame upon one's group. Uh, it expresses one's supreme concern for what others think. All right? So even though this is extreme, obviously, expression of, of, of seeking face, whatnot, I wanted you to catch that this is actually an act of love from their perspective. Do you see that? They're actually trying to uphold their family's reputation, their country's reputation. They see it as a, as a way of, of expressing loyalty. But people don't often realize that all cultures are actually honor and shame cultures. It's just that we use different language. Everybody wants face. Think about junior high. If you've been to junior high, then you understand honor and shame. Uh, we, the thing is, what do people think about me? You know, should I do this? Should I do this to get people's attention? Have social worth? You might think of face as social currency, like, like a social credit card. Okay, so maybe that might be helpful for you. Now, in junior high, uh, the standards for getting face and attention and whatnot, you know, could be your hairstyle, uh, it could be clothing. And in fact, in seventh grade, I had a hairstyle like this. And if you switch it, you'll see firsthand. Uh, it looked very similar to that, like that. Uh, and uh, in, in fact, I was nicknamed the flame because I said, it looks like your hair's on fire. Uh, and so that was my failed attempt at getting face in junior high. Uh, so the West is really no difference. It's just that we use different words, reputation, respect, and whatnot. 
uh, in America, honor-shame cultures include, you know, the American South, military, sports culture, you know. If you, you know, uh, are a Texas Longhorn, you understand shame. If you're at A&M, you understand honor. You know, just, you know, things like that. Uh, social media, you know, think about Facebook, you know, fans, friends, followers. That's this, this all honor-shame language, all honor-shame dynamics. So being concerned with one's face is not necessarily bad. Is what I want to get across. Um, a friend of mine invited me to speak at his church a little while back, and I remember feeling so nervous, and, which is unusual because I, I, I speak a lot, but why was I so nervous? And it wasn't actually so much uh, I realized that I was nervous about what people think about me, but it was that I was nervous about making my friend look bad, about messing up his re- reputation in his community. And it dawned on me, that's why, is that I love this brother, and I don't want people to go, where'd you, where'd you find this guy, you know? And him to lose respect. So being concerned with faith can be and often is an expression of love. Now, similarly, similarly in China, there's a phrase, uh, you don't want faith, which is an insult if you said to somebody. Uh, it means you're immoral. It means you don't care about what others think of you. Because a shameless person doesn't care about the relationships and reputation. Right? I mean, isn't that exactly what it means when you say you're shameless, you don't care what other people think? Uh, one writer uh, explains a shameless culture. In a shameless culture, self-restraint is continually undermined. Because after all, caring about honor, glory, is equated with being concerned with one's relationships. Now, what about the Bible? Uh, what about God? Does God have a sense of honor and shame? We're going to look at Jeremiah 14, 21 first. Notice what he says in the Old Testament. Do not spurn us for your name's sake. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember and do not break your covenant with us. So notice, what's the key phrase? It's for your name's sake. Don't dishonor your glorious throne. That's why God acts. Psalm 143, verse 11. For your namesake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. So what is the basis for saving his life? God's name. Now, this more Eastern perspective, I think, can help us better interpret uh, Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, you know, we're, we're going to read this morning uh, some of Romans, a letter that people are familiar with, but we're going to read from an honor-shame perspective. Just get a hint at how this more Eastern perspective can help us understand Scripture better. I would suggest that the key issue in Romans is not personal salvation, how a person gets saved. Instead, Paul's fundamental concern in the book, in the letter of the Romans, is God's own honor, God's face. So, most people agree that chapter 1, verse 16 and 17 is the kind of the thesis statement of the letter, where God, God's righteousness in the letter is an expression of his glory, his infinite honor. So here's our question now. Why does the gospel reveal God's righteousness? As it says in verse 16 and 17, why? Inasmuch as the gospel reveals God's righteousness, it manifests, it shows, demonstrates his glory. 
So in this way, this is the big idea I want to get across. In this way, Jesus saves God's face. Jesus died to save God's face. And if we miss this point, we actually miss one of the biggest points, the biggest purposes of the letter of Romans. But it routinely is overlooked. So we're going to survey chapters 1 to 3, some some key verses there. And we're going to see how Paul describes the basic problem in the world. You know, the problem that the gospel solves. Now, I want you to think about this, that your problem determines the type of solution you have. Make sense? So if you have a math problem, you don't need to give me a quiche recipe. Right? That's not, gonna, that's not the solution for the kind of problem I have. So first, we want to see the problem so that we can better understand the solution. So next question, what is the problem that threatens God's face? First, look at Romans 1, verse 18. All right, now sin, as before we look, sin is usually described as what? Crime, breaking God's law. Does that sound familiar? Well, let's, let's actually look to see what Paul says. Because that explanation is not entirely wrong, but it is so extraordinarily narrow uh, that we can easily miss the root problem of sin. So look at 1, 18, 31, if you have your Bible. And what you're going to see is that even here, sin is not primarily a legal problem. It's a shame problem. If you look in throughout chapter 1, you'll see that there's no law language whatsoever, but a lot of honor-shame language. So uh, uh, why does God reveal his wrath in, in, in 1, 18 and following? The unrighteousness of, of, of people is defined how? Look at 18 to 20, uh, or 21 to 23. For although they knew God, they did not what? Did not what? Let me go to the next one. They did not, go to the next one. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So how is unrighteous defined there? They did not, what? Honor God. They exchanged his glory for another. And then when you look at, uh, in the next few verses down, in 25 to 28, what is the problem there? They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They did not see fit to acknowledge God. See, that's the big idea here. It's not merely that they broke some arbitrary rules. And in verse 24 and 26, what do you see the consequence? The dishonoring of the bodies. God gave them to dishonorable pleasures. So shame is both the root and the fruit of sin. People think of shame merely as psychology. No, bringing shame upon God's name is the root problem. And the fruit of that is that we become shameful. So honor and shame is objective. It's not just a subjective psychological thing. Now, turn to Romans chapter 2. In verse 7, the justified, or the justified person uh, from verse 13, it said in verse 7, what should they do? It says, we should seek glory and honor. You see that? And in verse 10, same thing. What happens? The person who seeks glory and honor as part of salvation, they will gain glory and honor. So when people say, oh, you shouldn't seek glory and honor, 
Who says? You're not reading your Bible. It's made explicit. Now move down to verse 23 and 24, if you have your Bibles open. And this is one of my favorite, favorite passages on this point. Paul says, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For, as is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Okay. There's only actually, you won't see this in, in, in English as much, but in the original language, there's only one, one verb in that first and it's dishonor God. It's just a prepositional phrase, the whole breaking the law. That's just how you dishonor God. But the key idea, the key problem is the dishonoring of God. And then verse 24 reinforces that. The blaspheming of God's name is serious. Now, uh, turn next to Romans 3, finally. God faces a dilemma. Okay, We brought shame upon God. Uh, uh, we, we deserve condemnation, but God, now this will sound like blasphemous initially, but God cannot condemn humanity. In fact, it may surprise you, you know, it would be unrighteous at, of God to condemn humanity at this point. Now this sounds, I know, way strange and weird, but it would actually be unrighteous of God to do this. Now, that's what we're going to unpack it, and we're going to see why. So, uh, Together, oh, actually, I don't think I have uh, these verses up there. Uh, so we'll re- read chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, so you get the background here. Paul writes, Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So let's get clear on the context there. The objection from 1 and 2 stems from chapter 2. The Jews are saying, hey, wait a minute. If the Gentiles can be God's people, then what does it matter if we're circumcised? What does it matter if we're Jews, if we belong to Israel? It seems like God's a liar. It seems like there's a contradiction here between God's promises and what Paul is saying. But Paul says, no, 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 there is advantage. You have received God's word, God's revelation. So there is an advantage. But Paul continues in verse 3. He has to explain what's going on here. And, and he anticipates an objection. The Jewish conversation partner is, is questioning, well, is God unfaithful? Does God's faithfulness depend on our faithfulness? This is what if some were unfaithful. It's verse 4, chapter 3, verse 4, where Paul gives his answer. Somehow or another, chapter verse 4 is going to answer this question. Is God faithful? How is he faithful if he's letting Gentiles become his people without following the law? So let's look at uh, uh, 3 and 4. In verse 4, Paul quotes Psalm 51, verse 4, to support his conclusion where he says God will be justified, God will be declared righteous. In other words, there's some sense in which God is going to be shown righteous even though his people are unrighteous. But you go, this seems out of nowhere. This seems just like piecing together random stuff. So when asked the question, why is God righteous here? Um, Now, typically, when you think of God's righteousness, I want you to think of your first association. When we say God is righteous, therefore he must what? 
You must judge. Thank you. People will say he loves, he loves us, but he's righteous and holy, so he must judge us. And that's usually the, the normal association. But if you think about it, uh, that, that doesn't actually have anything to do with the immediate context. He's saying they're unfaithful. God's unfaithful. He judged the Jews and not Gentiles. What? It would make no sense. Uh, in some form or fashion, when you look there, when he's talking about God being righteous, he's affirming that God is true and faithful in some form or fashion to the oracles, to the words that he said. So we want to ask, well, what did David mean? When he, was, when he was saying this verse originally and Paul's quoting it, what did David mean? Why did David justify God? Now, I told you, you're going to have to dig deeper first, and then we're going to come back up for air in a second. Okay? But I want us to realize what's going on so that we don't simply settle for what's merely true and, and miss the actual point of the, of the Scripture. So we're going to turn to Psalm 51, 1 to 4. And uh, can we read together? Is that all right? All right, let's read together. Have mercy on me, O God, together, according to your steadfast love. Thank you. Now, typically, you go to the next slide, the, the focus is at verse 4. People say that the second part of verse 4 focuses on the top part of verse 4. But that creates a problem, the, the so that. You see that? Uh, I've highlighted it there. So that. It's purposeful. It would, it would appear like it, that he's saying, I sin so that you would be declared righteous. Now, does that sound like a problem? Does that sound like a problem to anyone else? Yeah, it'd be strange. I sense so that you can judge me, so that you can be declared righteous. Yeah, that's, that's a little bit of a problem. Because what I think people do is that we miss, we miss the structure of the whole argument. Uh, look at, notice the two, uh, the, 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 the two conjunctions. Let's go, I know this is a grammar class on the next slide. Do I have it here? The for and the so that. Okay, they are both answering why questions. Because look at the initial request that David has. Basically, save me, blot out my sin, forgive me. Why? For I've sinned, right? I'm in a mess, okay? Forgive me, blot out my sin, cleanse me. Why? So that, God, you will be declared righteous. You will be shown righteous. Do you see how you can ask the question why and get different answers? If somebody says, well, why are you eating dinner? I can say, well, because I have time, because I'm hungry, because my wife is a good cook. You know, you can just go through the list of whys, and they all are legitimate answers. And that's what's happening here. David is actually answering two different questions. So the so that modifies, it explains verses 1 and 2. And just for confirmation, look down at verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, for my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud for your righteousness. It's basically the same thing that was said above. They just cut out the whole sin part. If... And when you interpret Scripture with Scripture, obviously here this is not talking about God's condemnation, judgment, right? His wrath, right? Save me so that you will be shown righteous. Now I will declare your righteousness. So we have to ask why. What's going on here? How is that so? Well, what we forget is that God made a promise with David, made a covenant with David. And if God forsook David, then God would be a promise uh, breaker, wouldn't he? 
you'd be a liar. So in his saving David, he'd be showing himself faithful to his covenant with David. This is a point that we so often miss frequently because we don't read the Old Testament very much. Now, verse 51, or chapter Psalm 51 supports verse 3, but not in a normal way. Look at verse 16 and 17. It talks about how God is not delight in sacrifice or he'd give it. He's not pleased with burnt offerings, uh, sacrifices of God or a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. And in verse 10, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence or take away your Holy Spirit from me. So this is the context of the psalm. Now, we, when we turn back to Romans, we'll see actually Romans reminds us a lot of Psalm 51. Paul uses David to confirm the point of Romans 2 and 3 that God's people are not fundamentally defined by God's law. After all, David uh, was still one of his people. He was accepted by God, even though he was a lawbreaker. And David even says, hey, it's not, it's not the, the sacrifices that's the big deal. It's the heart that matters. And so Paul is in just simply saying, hey, look at David, the quintessential king of Israel. He was accepted by God apart from anything having to do with the law. David serves as the perfect counterpoint to the, the idea of the Jew in chapter 2 who says that somehow you have to keep the law, you have to become Jewish in order to be one of God's people. So now we take this logic and we put it back in Romans 3. Romans 3, 1 to 4. Those verses explain that God will show himself righteous when he fulfills his promises of salvation made to his people. Just like for David, so God will treat Israel and treat his people with faithfulness. Now, how does now bringing this all back to face, honor, and shame? It's precisely because God cares about his own reputation, his own glory, his own faith, that he faithfully reaches out to those who have failed, to those who have been forgotten and forsaken, those who have done wrong and, and played foul. It's because he cares about his face that he saves them and is faithful to them, that he won't break his promises, that he doesn't forsake his plan for, for the world. Because God is concerned with his name, he forgives those who are worthy of shame. See, this is the logic we miss when we settle for what's merely true. Yes, righteousness may have to do with judgment, but more often than not, it has to do with God keeping his promises, being faithful to what he said, even if that means him bearing our shame. Now, let me illustrate why this matters for us. Uh, after our first few years in China, I told my wife, over my dead body will I ever go back to that God-forsaken country. Yeah, I had a real teachable heart, didn't I? Um, I didn't have a, a, great, a great experience. So my plan at the time was to come back to the States and uh, uh, wear skinny jeans and do church planning. Because um, uh, growing up, I always wanted to do something great. And I, and I mistakenly thought that that meant church planning because for some reason I equated being known with being great. Now, fast forward, you know, a decade later, and this is what I wore um, one time when I, was, when I was leaving class I, so that no one could see me because uh, it was a great security threat. And earlier in that week, that same week, I had to hide under the bed twice when people came in. Um, and uh, when, the, when officials came in. 
So why the change? God just changed my heart. Um, at first, I was like the Jews in Paul's day, you know, apathetic and, and angry, and, uh, I want, and I had these ambitions to be a big fish in a little pond. But when God changed my heart, then I took joy in being a little fish in a huge ocean called China. Um, I essentially became more concerned with God's face than with my own. And so I became, I became free to love Chinese people, to, to love people at all. So this whole concern for face, it gets to the heart. It's not just a cultural thing. It gets to what do you love most? Who do you want to accept you? Who do you accept? How do you judge other people or not judge other people? Now, let me summarize where we've been so far. Paul seeks to defend God's honor. Now, according to the theology of Paul's opponents, God's righteousness should be called into question because it seems like God can't be faithful because he's accepting Gentiles. Now, Paul doesn't completely answer all the Jewish questions now, but that's what he first wants to get across, that, no, 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 God is faithful because look what he did with David. Even though David was a lawbreaker, he, he was accepted. He was the quintessential king, even though he acted outside the law, just like God accepts the Gentiles who live outside the law. So fast forward to, to Romans 3 real quickly, and you get to the very famous verses in uh, 25 and 26, where it essentially says that Christ died to show God's righteousness. And typical interpreters say, oh, this is to show God's punishing, condemning righteousness. But there's a problem with that reading. For one thing, in Verse 4, we just saw, it has a positive saving idea to it. And in verses 21 and 23, it clearly is positive. In the very exact same context, the same group of sentences, it's clearly positive. So, uh, and don't forget, in, in chapter 3, he's wrapping up the point that he's been building on since the beginning of chapter 3. So, it would be extremely odd for him to talk about God's saving righteousness, faithfulness, all of a sudden get to the end and then talk about this condemning righteousness. No, Christ died, what he's saying here, Christ died to show God's saving righteousness. And there's a lot of technical details, but I won't go into that uh, and how this all fleshes itself out. But the very next passage shows Paul's logic. You see in verse 27 and 30, what's that key word? I frequently tell my students, what are the most important words in the Bible? And they'll say, God, love, Jesus. I say, no, conjunctions. Then, therefore, because, since. Because they help you understand the logic, the thinking. Oh, that's bad. The thinking that goes into it. There we go. All right. There, can you hear me now? All right, good. All right. So in verse 27 and 30, the logic is essentially this. Uh, he first off starts out by comparing, hey, we believe in just, being justified by faith, not by the law. And then when you get to verse 29, he says, or, and then he speaks of being God of the Gentiles or God of the Jews. Well, why? What's the logic? Because how do you go from faith and works and then these ethnic categories? Because after all, even Gentiles could help old ladies across the street and do these nice good deeds. No. The law was a marker of your identity as a Jew, as one of God's people. And the Jews were essentially saying, hey, I have to become a Jew in order to be saved. And, and so Paul says, no, 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 no. God is not merely the God of the Jews. 
He's the God of the Gentiles as well, of all nations. And so when you get to verse 3, why, uh, verse 30, he says, since God is one, he's the God of all nations. So essentially when they're doing when they're making God just, they were saying the Gentiles have to become Jews in order to be saved. God would only bless one nation, Jews, Israel. That would make him the God of just one nation, but no, he's the God of all nations. So essentially the Jews, by saying that you had to be justified by the law, by becoming a Jew, were threatening God's honor. Because if that's true, God is unrighteous. God would not be keeping his promises. So it's in this way that Jesus died to save God's face. If Jesus doesn't die, then God cannot keep his promises to bless all nations through Abraham's offspring. Cannot bless, uh, cannot keep his covenant promises if Jesus doesn't die. Without Jesus' death, God cannot keep his promises. Now, uh, we'll skip uh, We'll skip the next and go right to some application here. Now, so what's the application? I have a few points here for us. How should... The question I want us to ask is, how should we respond to the God who seeks honor by sending Jesus to die a shameful death on a cross? How are we to respond to that? First off, we need to rethink our view of God. God seeks his own glory, his own face, and that's okay, that's glorious. God's honor, God's face is central to the message of Romans and in all the Bible. This is not some mere theological corollary. All of God is motivated by seeking his face, and that is an ultimately an expression of love. In particular, we have to re- rethink our assumptions about how God upholds his honor, how he demonstrates his righteousness. It's not by you know, smacking people down and being condemning, uh, though God's not afraid to judge, obviously, but it's because he, he is faithful, whatever the cost, even to himself. So salvation is possible. There is hope for salvation because he is righteous, because he does what's right, because he is faithful. So it's not based on, so you can't say, well, well, I was a good person, I'm a bad person, I'm white, I'm black, I'm female, I'm this, I, whatever. I'm Republican, I'm Democrat. No, 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 all those categories don't matter because ultimately it matters, is God faithful to his promise? Whatever your scripts, whatever your mistaken theology and, and misunderstandings and whatever else. Now, Nehemiah plainly states the reason why uh, God keeps his promises to rescue his people. He says, you have kept your promises for you are righteous. So we have to rethink our, our understanding of God and how he expresses himself. God is a promise-keeping God, and we absolutely cannot live the Christian life unless we know his promises. And we will not believe his promises unless we know his character as one who uh, bears the shame of the cross even in order to keep those promises. So righteousness is not primarily about, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, the fact that somebody's mad or God's mad at us or he's offended. It's primarily, it has to do with love. God expresses his love in this way. Uh, because he, keeps, he cares about his own face, therefore he says, okay, I'm going to save them. I'm going to suffer in this way. So this is not like a, well, does he love me or does he love himself? No, because he loves his own face, he dies for the sake of his family. 
Now, uh, let me summarize uh, this particular point because theological textbooks, and, and when we, people talk about God, we frequently talk about God as omniscient, omnipotent. Uh, we use these abstract terms that people don't have any idea what they mean, omnipresent. Uh, but by contrast, when Paul and other writers of the Bible talk about God, they talk about concrete works in history, uh, particularly in relationships. That's how God demonstrates his character. It's not in these abstract theological terms. So think about when you're sharing the gospel with people or you're uh, trying to infirm yourself, uh, encourage yourself, encourage other people around it, not using these big abstract terms uh, to describe God, but talk about what God has actually done in history in concrete places and times with certain people. When God, when God introduces himself in Scripture, how does, he, how does he do it? I think of Exodus 3. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Other places, I am the God who led Israel out of Egypt. Specific things he's done. Uh, two, second application. We need to ask, how do we, how do you seek honor? Is it because of how clever or funny you are um, or attractive? Is it because of your title or your income? Um, is it based, or is it based on your character? Is that what you seek face for? Uh, your allegiance and loyalty to your supervisor or to your wife? Or what is it? These things are all going to shape your reputation. And... Uh, Loyalty these days, you know, part of, part of what's related to honor is, uh, is, he, is loyalty. That's an honorable thing. But loyalty these days is quite inconvenient. It's an inconvenient virtue. Uh, and it's increasingly difficult to esteem loyalty when we value personal autonomy, personal independence, self-reliance. Now, one writer puts it this way. Loyalty conflicts with the prerogative of changing our preferences. Blaming betrayal without praising loyalty, we want to be free from loyalty without suffering from its absence. We want the benefits, we want other people to be loyal to us, but we, don't, we are not necessarily that way. Think To put it in very street terms, people say, oh, we want community, we want community. But then people, don't know, people just want everyone else to be, be community. They said, no one greeted me when I visited the church. Well, did you say hi to anyone? Well, no. No one invites me to their home. I feel like the church is so this or that. Well, do you ever welcome people in your home? Well, no. We want everyone else to do community, but we don't want to do community because we want to be autonomous. Um, nowadays, we, when, we think of, when people talk about loyalty, we think of uh, customer loyalty, uh, social media. Do you like them? Are you following them? Uh, we, nowadays, people treat churches like a, a social club. You know, what, what, do you, what have you done for me lately? Uh, no, so is it any wonder why churches struggle? People don't know how to be a church family because we don't know how to be a family at home. We don't show loyalty to our own spouses or kids, mothers, fathers. And we're not loyal to our families because we all have our individual agendas that we won't let anyone get in the way of. By contrast, Christ demonstrates loyalty, his faithfulness, by being willing to suffer death for the sake of God's honor. He sought glory through shame. And if you do not know Christ, then this is God's word and invitation to you. 
Stop the insistent competition for attention. Stop posturing for respect. Stop propping up some public persona. At best, Instagram and Facebook friends might be your fans, but they're not your family. Only Christ can give you the identity and acceptance you want. Seek his face rather than your own. So this leads to a third application. Are you willing to lose face in order to give God face? David had to confess his sin and weakness in order that God would be declared righteous to all nations. Now, don't fool yourself now. Hiding your sin does not honor God. Ultimately, God's honor doesn't depend on our perfection. God gets face when we lose face. Think about that. If we're not willing to lose face, then what we need God for? What we act like God. And these principles carry around in other, in other areas, like being a missionary. So think about when the decision to become a missionary uh, or, to, or to do some hard things. Ask yourself, if you're thinking about possibly becoming a missionary, uh, you have to ask, am I willing to look like a bumbling idiot who sounds like a, a kindergartner when I speak because I don't, can't speak the other language? Am I willing to be accused of betraying my family because I moved with the kids overseas? Are you willing, for example, to go to the Middle East and love Muslims, even though it's vogue nowadays for Americans to slander Muslims as if they were all terrorists? These are all ways in which you could lose face to family and friends. Um, but we have to lose face in order to give God face. Fourth, evangelism, sharing the gospel. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel because it revealed the righteousness of God. So the gospel highlights God's character as revealed through his steadfast love and faithfulness. That's what the gospel reveals. But think about what what we do. I think so often uh, we actually prop up the other person that we're talking to when we're sharing the gospel more than God. You're so special. God loves you so much. If you're the only person who who lived on the planet, God, Jesus would have died for you. You know, and so no wonder people say they believe, oh, God worships me, well, I worship me. Well, we got that in common. Essentially, our method of sharing the gospel is just perpetuating idolatry, self-idolatry. God is not some means or tool to an end. He's not a bridge. He's the destination. And so when we speak of the gospel, when we speak of God, we need to extol God's worth more than that person's worth. Because if God doesn't have ultimate worth, then our worth is, is not that much either since we bear his image. Uh, uh, fifth, faith gives God face. We need to rethink what faith is. Uh, Paul wants us to have the faith like Abraham. But as, we, as you'd see in, in chapter 4, verse 17, uh, when it describes his faith, it says that uh, he believed God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And he says, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So faith is not merely believing that God did something in the past. It's that he will keep his promises in the future. Therefore, you don't veer off this way or this way. Temptation makes promises just like God makes promises. And every decision of our life is which promises are you going to believe? If you know that God is, is a faithful, righteous God who keeps his promises even to the point his son died, then we can resist the temptation and the luring promises of sin. This is the kind of faith that focuses on God's character, not merely doctrines. 
the type of God he is. Finally, last application. I want to talk about missions. You wouldn't have someone who lives overseas and then not talk about missions somewhere, right? Missions saves God's face. This is the basic logic of missions. Missions is essential to God's plan. Missions is not merely uh, some extra ministry to the side. If missions doesn't exist, God loses face because missions is the way that God blesses all nations. So if missions don't exist, the blessing doesn't go to all nations, then God is a liar. So missions is essential. The crossing of cultures with the gospel is essential to God's plan. Missions manifest God's faithfulness. So I may step on some toes, but I get on a plane a few weeks and leave. And, but the whole popular phrase, everyone's a missionary, is just not helpful. Not because missionaries are more special or not whatever else, but it's a distinct role. Just like we wouldn't say you have chefs and you have lawyers and you have doctors. They all have different roles. Missions is a specific role in God's plan. So when we say everyone's a missionary, well, no one's a missionary. We want to make sure that we don't lose sight of that strategic, essential part of, of, of God's plan where he gets face. God's name is at stake. And this is the motivation for missions. This is the motivation for doing hard things, is that God will get face. So my, my challenge and call to us is that we would be willing to see God's face, that we would be able to pursue glory, that we pursue honor through shame. Because ultimately, God will give us glory and honor that we desire.